I grew up first in a really small town. They actually moved from that small town to the large city just so that we could get access to better education. And that meant, uh, you know, like resetting. So my father is a, a private uh, practitioner. He's a dental surgeon. Uh, he had to kind of give up like a very thriving practice in that small town and, you know, establish himself from scratch. So it was it was definitely a lot of, you know, hard work and risk. Um, and yeah, they, they made it happen. My guest today is the CEO of Wingman. Here's what some of her colleagues say about her. Shruti is very thoughtful and considerate, a great leader and natural coach. She has a rare ability to stay hyper-focused. She is self-motivated and extremely creative. She has a quiet determination that gets results. Shruti Kapoor, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. That was a fantastic, fantastic introduction. I want to know where you got that from. Uh, your LinkedIn profile, that's where I got it for. <laughs> Simple, <laughs> so they're, they're there for all to see. Um, tell me, Shruti, uh, um, you're, you're an Indian national, right? Yes, I am. Um, tell me about where you grew up and what sort of childhood that was like. Sure. So I grew up in a really small town in North India um, called Menpuri. I was there till the age of 10, uh, moved to a slightly larger city, um, still, you know, like a tier two city in India. Uh, and then uh, at the age of 16, went to Singapore for my education uh, and spent, you know, roughly a decade there uh, after that. So it was quite a transition, you know, going from a really, really small town to, um, you know, a, a big, big city uh, at a very young age. Uh, and now I've been in Bangalore in India for the last 13 years. Now, when you said you moved to Singapore, did you move on your own or did your family move with you? I moved on my own, um, yeah. So I went there to stay by myself in a hostel. What age were you? 16. Wow. That's phenomenal. That, that's, that must take a lot of courage. You know, in hindsight, I don't know how my parents did that, uh, right? Like, it was also much, much tougher back then uh, because it was so hard to stay in touch. You know, you didn't have all this technology. You couldn't do video calls. Uh, mm. It was really expensive even calling back home. So it used to be like $2 for a minute of calling, and uh, which meant that, you know, I would probably speak to my parents for like maybe 10 minutes across a month or something. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was it was quite the journey, but I think it, definitely made me get the confidence that I could do anything by myself. I bet it did. And I know there's a very vibrant Indian culture in Singapore, um, but I'm just wondering what it was like as a 16-year-old going there, which is, it's, it's another country, it is a different culture, despite the fact I know there's, uh, there, there, are, there are wonderful subcultures. Singapore is such a melting pot in, in uh, the part of the world. But yeah, I'm curious to know what it must be like walking in there as a 16-year-old looking around and what went through your mind when you were there for the first time and what was your experience like? So, um, you know, I think there were many things that were just starkly different, right? And also my own exposure at that point had been very, very limited. So I didn't even know what to expect, right? I, I hadn't you know, for example, see movies or TV shows about Singapore. Uh, like, if, you know, if somebody is going to the U.S. today, they have a lot more exposure to what to expect. Um, so when I went there, uh, right, like, of course, one big kind of challenge was just communication. Uh, I, you know, while I speak English and people there speak English, but, you know, the dialects can be so different. Um, I used to speak really fast, uh, which I've tried to consciously tone down, but uh, I think it's still bad. <laughs> And uh, so, so, you know, I was like, I think the first month, uh, it just took me some time to realize that people were not really understanding what I was saying. And I was definitely not understanding what they were saying. Uh, the food was a big shocker. So while, you know, there is a vibrant Indian community there, uh, I happened to be in a hostel and in a college, which was a much more, uh, you know, kind of Chinese ethnicity people. Uh, and I was also 
brought up as a vegetarian, but somehow I think when we were choosing our options, we didn't make that clear. And I landed up in a hostel that was non-vegetarian. So, you know, I kind of started my journey with, uh, you know, figuring out what I was eating and I would be like, hey, that doesn't look vegetarian. They're like, oh, that's fully vegetarian. That's just fish. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was that was one other struggle. And then, of course, just uh, managing your own finances as a 16 year old. Uh, that's like a whole uh, learning experience in itself. Uh, so I was there on a scholarship, which meant that I would get like a $200 monthly allowance. And I was trying to make sure that I was living within that, uh, which was really, really tough. Um, so yeah, I think just walking in there, it was a lot of stuff going on, but you know, you kind of just assume that you had to make it happen. Um, so, you know, while it was hard, you just uh, try to figure your way out of it. Mm. And was your desire to go to Singapore, was that, did that come from you or did it come from your parents? Um, so I think it was definitely a mix of both, uh, right? My dad was, you know, very motivated to send me uh, outside for education uh, and this opportunity came up and he's like, you should absolutely do this. It'll be great exposure. Um, my mom was a lot more hesitant, uh, you know, letting me go at such a young age. I'm also the youngest kid in the family. So, you know, nobody kind of really believes that I could take care of myself. <laughs> so uh, so that was uh, part of it. And then like, yeah, for me, while I did think of it as a big adventure, I was also the person who had literally never stayed without my parents or especially without my mom for like, you know, even a week uh, up to that point. So I was like, I don't know whether I can make that work. Mm. And how did you make it work? Um, like I said, I think uh, in some sense, I didn't realize that there was an option to not make it work. All right. Mm. And uh, because you also didn't have as much communication uh, in those days, like, you know, I believe in hindsight that helped. Uh, like my parents didn't know uh, that it was so hard for me and you know I didn't know what my parents were going through um, so I think maybe in some sense that additional distance just made it like feel that you you know you were kind of on your own and you just have to take care of yourself uh, but I think uh, it was also helpful to have other students going through the same journey knowing that you know people had survived that uh, and you could come out of uh, it the other side uh, with a lot of benefit, uh, right, in terms of just, um, you know, uh, a better education, better networks, uh, better options. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think uh, that helped. And, uh, of course, I really enjoyed the experience of meeting people mm -hmm. from many different countries. Um, they, they used to run a fantastic scholarship program with, uh, they would bring in students from many different countries together. And, you know, so it wasn't just, like, feeling like you were going through this with a very small group of people there was like a large enough community and everybody could mm. share that experience of you know sometimes feeling homesick sometimes missing uh, the food that they love or missing their family so yeah mm. i think misery likes company <laughs> you stayed on in college there what did you study in college i studied life sciences life sciences interesting what, what made you choose those so from a very young age, I was very sure that I wanted to do something that was a good combination of, you know, maths and physics and stuff that I really loved mm. and also biology. And so I thought, hey, you know, there's something called biotechnology that seems to be the melting pot of these two things. And over a period of time, I had gotten really interested in biotech research. So I wanted to kind of, you know, go down the path of doing maybe cancer research or something. And I was like, OK, let me just pick this field. Um, mm. But yeah, um, eventually I decided to switch fields um, and I decided not to do my PhD. Okay. I'm wondering in what ways, as you look back, you can see how that experience has shaped who you are as a person today. Maybe you could talk to that for me, please. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing that it definitely gave me was a lot of confidence that I could take on something uh, which seemed like a big challenge, which was a very foreign opportunity, but make it work. Uh, and, mm. you know, I think I devised some tools on how uh, I went through that experience, right? So it was about, uh, you know, one, making sure that I kept the focus on a day-to-day -day level of, you know, okay, you kind of get through one day at a time and, you know, it, it builds up. Uh, the second part of it was realizing that, 
um, you know, if you find other people who are going through uh, a tougher experience than you for whatever reason, um, you know, it kind of, in some sense, also motivates you to make sure that you don't drop out and you continue to also be in, mm. in some ways an inspiration and motivation to them. So I remember when I was going through that experience, there were a lot of other kids who seemed to be taking it much rougher than me. And I think mm. just kind of helping them through it um, made me focus a lot more on saying, hey, this is how you could stay the course and this is what it would mean, not just for you, but also for other folks. So I think, for example, when I started uh, the company, it was it was similar, right? I would spend a lot of time talking to other founders as well because I knew that everybody's going through their own set of uh, difficulties and then, you know, you kind of survive through it together. Um, I think those two things of like saying, hey, you can handle anything, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, I mm. think that that's kind of been a lesson that's uh, definitely mm. lived with me. I want to talk to you about your experience as a founder of what that was like for you and what it is like for you because you, you still are. Um, but bridge, bridge that for me between studying in college and starting a business. How did you get there? Yeah, so I, um, you know, after my degree in life sciences, I decided I was more interested in business. I went on to pursue an MBA uh, from the Indian Institute of Management. And post that, I, you know, I still didn't know broadly what exactly I wanted to do. So I chose, uh, you know, one of those careers which give you a lot of flexibility. So I chose investment banking. Um, so I worked as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley because, you know, you get exposure to a lot of different industries. Mm. Um, <clears throat> did that for a couple of years. In fact, during the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, I was in investment banking, which is, um, you know, a long story for another day. Again, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> um, and then I went on to, um, you know, what I learned was that I was really interested both on the business side of things, but, you know, technology was something that was still very close to my heart. So I went into work for a company called Intellectual Ventures uh, Invention Development Fund, uh, which was investing in very early stage technology, you know, largely research coming out of universities and helping take mm. that to market. Uh, and that was something that I really enjoyed doing. I did that for seven years. But throughout, you know, I was, of course, closely working with technology, with startups. Uh, but somewhere I wanted to do my own startup and, um, you know, switched on to working for a startup called Pioneer. And then from there, uh, I was in a more sales and go-to-market role and decided that, hey, you know, while this is great, I see some challenges and some opportunities there. And that's what gave me the idea to build Wingman. Listening to this and the question that comes to mind most is, where does your drive come from? Um, yeah, I think to some extent it's, it's about like, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a deep question. There are probably a few things there, um, right? One is there were a few people who put a lot of faith and a lot of um, kind of investment in bringing me to the stage at which I am, right? Uh, definitely my parents, like they made a bunch of sacrifices to make sure that we got the right education, got the right opportunities. And so I think all along the way, I felt like I had to make sure that like their bets were proven, right? Uh, right? Like um, part of it was, uh, you know, of course, from the cultural context from which I come, um, a lot of people would question those choices, right? They are not the most obvious choices. Uh, they would be like, you know, she's a girl child. You don't have to, you know, spend so much energy in educating them. Um, you know, anyways, they're going to get married and raise a family instead. Mm. Um, so I think to some extent, like making sure that I um, proved them right uh, in the bets that they made, uh, I think was a large part of the drive. And uh, yeah, I think that that definitely mm. continues to fuel it. I love, I love that Turner phrase, proving their bet, bets right. That's a really nice way of putting it. But it, it, it sounds to me that they were extraordinary in their own way because what they encouraged you to do, and not just encouraged you, but as you said, put their money where their mouth was and, and also put a lot of heartache. Because you, you said letting a child go is not easy for any parent. You don't appreciate it at the time until you have your own children. Um, and, and so for them to go through that and outside of what you said was the cultural context, they must be extraordinary people in their own right. Absolutely, yeah. And um, definitely path breakers. Like, 
they switch cities. Like I said, you know, I grew up first in a really small town. They actually moved from that small town to the large city just so that we could get access to better education. And that meant, uh, you know, like resetting. So my father is a, a private uh, practitioner. He's a dental surgeon. Uh, he had to kind of give up like a very thriving practice in that small town and, you know, establish himself from scratch. So it was, it was definitely a lot of, you know, hard work and risk. Um, and yeah, they, they made it happen. You know, there's a, there's, there's a term that goes around an awful lot these days, privilege, and there's all sorts of privilege. But I, I've come to the conclusion, and, and you've just, just reinforced it for me, that if you've got good parents, that is the greatest privilege on the planet that you could possibly have. That's true. That's true. And that's probably the one thing that we take for granted most of our lives. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it really is. Okay, so we're back. So I am, I am interested in the, uh, the, the, the banking side of things. Not so much the banking, right? Who's interested in bankers? But what I'm interested in is what happens in 2008 when the whole thing seems to just implode inwards and people are left wondering what they're going to do. I'm wondering how much of your earlier experience you, you, you went back on the, the ability, okay, now, uh, you know, the resilience, uh, here's my choices, here's my options, let's get on with it. I'm wondering, was, did that kick in immediately or did you have to massage it a little bit in order to move away from that, that place? Um, so, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, when the implosion happened, all right, um, the, the thing was that I was, very, very early in the system, right? So I didn't mm. kind of have the full visibility or the context. And I think, uh, therefore, I did not think of it so much as, you know, where do I fit in or where does banking as an industry fit in? Because there was, of course, a lot of, uh, you know, angst about mm. how banks had dealt with the situations over the years just for short-term gains. Um, I think it was more about, like, my personal experience through that journey was just seeing everybody that I knew who had a job in banking or, like, at least like 85% of those people losing their jobs, mm. right? Like I joined uh, Morgan Stanley and at that point, like the person who had recruited me had already been laid off. And like, you know, the bunch of people I continued to work with, like, you know, every day you didn't know who was going next. Mm. Um, so I think to some extent, I then um, switched my perspective to also understanding and appreciating that like you don't always have full control on everything that's happening yeah. right like there might be something that is in the bigger picture and you just happen to find yourself uh, you know at the wrong place at the wrong time uh, and it's okay uh, to then not hold yourself responsible for things that might or might not work out um, and I think like it also gave me a lot of appreciation for just um, you know in some sense being somewhat more lenient with people around me uh, because they might mm. be going through um, things or they might have found themselves in situations that left them in unfortunate positions. Um, I think I was a little bit more judgmental uh, going in uh, than I was coming out. That's an interesting one because I, I can imagine that if you've been in a situation where you've had to stand on your own two feet and you had to survive and, and push through, that it's easy to be less tolerant of those who maybe don't have the same makeup, the same ability to process what's going on and to stand on their own two feet. And what you're saying is that additional experience of the financial crash helped you to see that, that everybody's going through their own crap and you, you, yeah. you got to just be a little bit more compassionate towards others that, yeah. They, they, okay. That's a, That's interesting insight. It really is. Um, Want to talk to you about wingman? I'm I, I'd never heard of it before. Uh, we made contact, and talk, so so people. I'm I'm assuming there's others have not heard of wingman. So maybe you tell us a little bit about what the company is. But where I really want to get to is where the idea came from, where the inspiration came from to pursue this, pursue wingman. Yeah. So. Before I started Wingman, I was working at Pioneer, uh, which is, you know, a cross-border payments platform. And I joined them uh, to help them set up their go-to-market motion in India. Um, and, 
you know, I had not really directly done sales up till that point. I'd been, you know, on the investment side, on the business development partnerships play. And uh, when I started looking at the go-to-market piece, I realized that, you know, a big part of uh, figuring out go-to-market is not just, you know, hiring salespeople and selling, but it's also going all the way back to marketing and product to make sure that you kind of know what the customers want and you're communicating mm. with customers the right way. Um, and in that journey, um, you know, we would often ask salespeople for feedback. And that was a painful process because salespeople didn't remember, like, you know, what happened on a call a week back. Uh, and, you know, it was always very biased with recency. Uh, so that was one challenge that I was constantly facing. The second challenge that I was facing was, um, you know, we had like these fancy dashboards. We had a whole analytics team. But uh, I knew uh, that the data, you know, that was feeding into all of that wasn't really accurate. Like, you know, even basic mm. things like how many meetings people have had, right? That wasn't accurate because people didn't want to go back and fill in the CRM. And they would only fill in the CRM if there was like, you know, some stick or some carrot <laughs> deadline. And so I was like, you know, this is not making any sense because people are trying to make all these predictions on what is the velocity of sale and what is the sales life cycle. And like none of those things are true. Uh, and the third thing was like, you know, as we were constantly iterating uh, on, you know, what is the product or what is the offering, we often wanted to go back and look at notes from customer conversations to say, hey, you know, somebody had asked us for this. Can we now, now that we have this feature or this product offering, can we go back and sell this to them? Uh, but there was no way for us to have all of those notes because salespeople were not entering those notes. Um, so that's kind of where I started thinking about like, you know, how much of that information lived within sales conversations. And mm. I was like, listen, you know, if somebody could actually access all of this information from sales conversations, both one by one for every call, but also at an aggregate level, that would be phenomenal. And, um, mm. you know, that's kind of where I started looking at this. And as we spoke to more and more sales managers, we realized that this is definitely a problem everybody was facing. And they felt that if they had this information, not only would they use it for you know all the things that I spoke about, but they would love to use it for just coaching their sales reps. And so we said, hey, you know that's fantastic. Uh, let's go build something that helps you know sales reps actually get better because that was also a common complaint from sales reps where they were like, hey, you know I think I'm good, but I don't know how to be great, uh, right? How do I get better? Um, mm. So yeah, that's that's kind of how uh, this got triggered. Is it a form of uh, conversational intelligence platform? Yeah, so Wingman is a conversational intelligence platform, uh, which does, of course, all of the analytics around sales conversations. Uh, but our focus is on making sure that we help reps take the right actions based on all of that intelligence. Because, mm. you know, it's, I believe that, like, you know, intelligence is good, but unless somebody is actually acting on it, like, you know, nothing's happening, nothing's changing. Mm. Um, so we go a little bit beyond just, delivering that intelligence, we actually, you know, prompt them and coach them in real time through AI so that they could actually be taking better actions. Um, mm. And we also use a lot of post-call analytics and coaching mm. to help them uh, take better mm. actions. I'm familiar, Shruti, with Gong, Refract, Chorus. How is Wingman different? How does it set apart from other uh, call software? Yeah, so... You know, the way I like to describe it is, you know, a lot of those platforms help you do postmortems, right? They help you understand what went wrong. Uh, but what really helps save lives is surgeries, right? Like you need to be able to act on making those conversations better. Uh, it's not just enough telling people, hey, your talk to listen ratio is 70%, right? Um, what can I do to help someone actually have a lower talk to listen ratio if you know, if you've mm. come to the conclusion that that's important. Um, so, you know, for as an example to that, what Wingman would do is it would actually set, give a prompt to the salesperson if they go on a long monologue and say, hey, you know, do you want to ask a question and do a check-in right now because you've been speaking for three minutes nonstop? Um, so mm. those, that's like an important part of the difference, which is helping people take actions. And the second part of the difference is for it to not just be a visibility platform for managers, but for it to be a platform that actually assists salespeople uh, in closing more deals, in taking better actions. Um, so, yeah. I, I, as you're giving me that example, I was thinking of my piano teacher when I was seven years of age. And I'm playing notes, and if I get the note wrong, she had a little stick, and she just 
tap me on the on the knuckles with the stick. <laughs> it's like the, you're talking too long. <laughs> I'm sure it's not as as yeah as you describe it. It's more of a kind of suggestion and yeah, that's interesting. So it's kind of intervenes some way. Um, now here's what I want to ask you about that because that that sounds great. Here's how I could imagine that being used with a marketer. And marketers were put on this planet to screw everything up for sales, right? That we know that. <laughs> Let the marketers not hear that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I could imagine that where they're, they're now starting to take paragraphs from a brochure and say, tell them this, tell them this, don't forget to mention we're the leading provider of. Um, where's the line in helpfulness and suffocation? Yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, right? Um, but I think that point is not so much related just to the tools and the tech stack, right? That point is related to the sales enablement philosophy of that organization. Um, and I think organizations, you know, kind of span the entire spectrum from what we see, right? There are mm. people who believe that, you know, there should be a lot of freedom and there are people who believe that there should be a lot of scripting. Um, mm. I personally believe that you know, where you land up on that curve depends on multiple things. One of them mm. definitely being, um, you know, what is the skill and experience level of a salesperson and what is the complexity of what it is that you're trying to sell, uh, right? So I think those things definitely vary. And I agree with you that, you know, that mix and that balance has to be right. Um, so of course, you know, while the platform can help you maybe lie on either end of that spectrum. You know, where you choose to lie is, um, you know, a choice that the organization makes. Mm, I get it. Um, and, and, and it makes perfect sense, actually. It really does. Um, I, I'm interested in the, if you, if you think back on you, from the moment you decided that you're going to go after this business, I always, I always imagine there's a kind of a rush of adrenaline when you make that decision and everything looks, there's, there's, a, there's an excitement, but there's an, a, a, a dread as well because you know there's going to be trouble over the hill. Uh, talk to me about some of the biggest speed bumps you had to overcome and what you learned as, uh, as a result. I would say that, you know, there's never like an immediate adrenaline rush uh, when you're running a business, right? Like everything uh, takes its own time, right? Both the good mm. things and the bad things. Uh, you probably live more in trepidation uh, than in the adrenaline phase. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. But I think for us, some of the speed bumps, um, one was definitely, um, you know, early on as we were building the platform, uh, what we realized was that while people love to talk about coaching, um, not a lot of managers actually practiced it, right? So that was a big speed bump because, you know, we went in, we implemented the platform with a few companies and then a few weeks later we are like, you know, not that many people are using the platform and what's going on. Um, and then we realized that it's just because coaching is something that, you know, is aspirational, uh, but it's not a KPI for sales managers. It's not what they get paid their commissions on. Um, so, so that was kind of a speed bump. And then we had to rethink, um, you know, what exactly should the platform deliver and what should be the value proposition and the positioning. Um, and I think we've seen that now across platforms, right? Like I think a lot of platforms have moved their messaging away from coaching to other things and for obvious reasons. Um, I think the pandemic was a big speed bump. Uh, right. Uh, we suddenly saw, um, you know, not very different from the times that we are seeing right now, where everybody who was worth their salt wanted to come in and call it, um, you know, a recession, um, you know, pump up the fear uh, very, very mm. early on in the pandemic. And, you know, we had all these great thought leadership notes from, you know, lots of uh, investment firms and the like saying, you know, everybody should conserve cash. And what that meant was immediately a lot of sales teams actually um, you know, fell, faced the knife and, you know, a lot of teams actually got laid off. Uh, mm. And that directly impacted us for sure because we are selling to sales teams. Mm. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, I think as we went through the pandemic, though, we kind of came out on the other side with uh, benefiting from 
the remote work uh, and the distributed workforce that emerged uh, from that. Uh, I would say those were kind of the two big bumps. And right now, um, you know, we're kind of going through what seems like turbulent economic times once again. Uh, we'll see, um, you know, how we come out of this on the other side. But it's definitely, um, you know, seems like uh, time to check out if the speed bumps just around the corner. That's true. I also think there's an opportunity in every crisis. And the pandemic, with people working remotely, I would have thought was a huge opportunity for you because now I have to manage people who I don't get to sit down beside when they're making their calls. I don't get to listen in. I don't get to see them and how they're engaging on the phone from a distance. But So I now, now I've got my wingman, right? I get that. I'm also thinking, as I see in the States, and I think it's... I think it's Oh, no, it's not true. I was going to say it's in mostly startup companies. That's not true. That's just where I, the bubble I live in. Um, but there's salespeople being laid off as well because of this trouble ahead that is being forecasted and is, to some extent is here for sure. Um, but I would have thought as well in doing that, if I have fewer salespeople, then I need the people I have to be operating at their absolute maximum and I want my managers engaged in coaching. I want to use tools like Wingman to be able to train them better, to, yeah, to come up that learning curve, to, to be more productive. Because, because I, I, that, that's where I, I would have thought the opportunity is. I don't know what you see and how, how people are, are framing that to you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there is definitely a lot more focus on making the most of the resources that you have, right, uh, in, in the given context. Um, mm. I think over the last two years, what we've seen is <coughs> the fact that people are a lot more comfortable in saying, I'm just investing in growth for the future. It doesn't matter if I'm not realizing, you know, the full gain of it today. Um, but I think today as the focus shifts more towards, uh, hey, you know, I've invested in these resources. How do I make the most of these resources? How do I make sure that each of my sales reps is doing the best mm. they can? Um, you know, that that's definitely a big theme, uh, right? The second part of it is um, also you're not going to have as much opportunity on the top of the funnel, right? Like earlier people were okay, you know, it's okay if I have a 3%, you know, win rate, um, you know, the top of the funnel is just so large today as the top of the funnel growth is slowing down i think people have much more focused on making sure that the win rate is bigger so yeah it's, it's definitely um, something that we are hearing in the market as well Paul. what do you enjoy most about what you're doing currently i think just building and growing the team has been a fantastic learning and a fantastic journey and i think today the fact that I can rely on all of these people to, you know, build and uh, scale uh, what we started uh, with just like the three of us. Uh, that's mm. really inspiring to see. Um, mm. And yeah, I, I love uh, reaching out and speaking to uh, anybody on the sales side uh, and learning more about what's going on, what's their challenge. What has surprised you most in a positive way about building a team? Um. You know, I think uh, the one thing that that I've really been surprised by and really enjoyed is if you empower the people and if you get the right alignment in terms of the mission, um, how much uh, energy uh, everybody can bring to that mission together. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it can, it can energize you. Like, you know, when you start out a company, you feel like you are the person who's most inspired by this mission and you have to kind of, you know, carry the flag in some sense. But I think that's been the biggest surprise. Like, you know, you can actually have other people carry the flag with you or for you. Mm. Yeah. Because I would imagine that when you start that out first, you said those three of you started that it can almost feel like nobody else can do this job because you have to do all the jobs. You wear all the hats. And then to be able to build a team so that the goal, I guess, is to get it so that they're completely independent of you. That would be the, exactly. the ultimate goal. Yeah, that, that's not easy. That is not easy. I admire anybody who gets there because there's so many, so many speed bumps and traps along the way that can, that can get in the way. So hats off to you. Um, 
The question is a bit of a cliched question, but I would imagine if you could go back and speak to your 16-year-old self arriving in Singapore, what would you say to her? This too shall pass. Hmm. Is that a I theme of that... your life? <laughs> no, I, I just wonder, because you, you mentioned it a couple of times with the investment bank, and, and you mentioned it also in terms of some of the, the industry clouds that are gathering. It's, there seems to be a philosophy there that, you know, this too shall pass. Yeah, but I think, um, you know, a lot of times people think of the, this too shall pass in terms of just the bad times or things that you want to get over, right? But I think it's all equally important to remember that in the good times, right? Like, mm. um, you know, a lot of times you just get carried away with the exuberance uh, as well. And I think it's important to know that, um, you know, like I think the underlying philosophy is that um, don't let the environment and the external factors impact you so much, right? Whether that's the good or the bad, uh, right? Like have an internal kind of balance, uh, internal yeah. uh, checkpoints. Um, because, you know, the world is always going to continuously change and you can't rely on all of those things 100% for how you feel day to day and how you, uh, you know, live day to day. I heard that expressed by somebody recently and I thought it was really nice. And they said, don't let the highs go to your head and don't let the lows go to your heart. And I thought it was a nice way of expressing that. It's not just don't let the the bad things get to you, but it is like everything at some stage will pass. Enjoy it while it's there, but it's going to pass. And then it's something else, which is a a, a really interesting philosophy. Um, I know you mentioned that your parents were a big influence on you. As you grew into the adult world, could you talk to me a little bit about some of the other individuals who influenced you and why? Yeah, so I think um, for me, I've, uh, you know, realized that role models can actually play a much bigger part than uh, I would have initially given credit for, right? And so they don't necessarily have to be people that I engage with day to day, but just people that I can, in some sense, relate to and realize that, you know, if they've, you know, done this journey, then, you know, maybe I can go through that journey as well. Um, So, you know, I think some powerful women leaders that I've seen, you know, either myself or through books uh, and popular media media have been, um, you know, an important part of this. Um, There was, uh, you know, kind of a partner at the investment bank, uh, Kate, who was, um, you know, like a big inspiration figure for me because it was just also a very male-dominated industry, of course. Um, but I think, you know, and I think recently I've been reading uh, the book by Indra Nui and her journey to becoming the CEO of Pepsi and how she's used that uh, beyond just growing Pepsi, but, you know, in some mm-hmm. sense, uh, uh, making the world a better place. And I think uh, that's that's also been uh, pretty inspirational for me. But I think there have been like many different people along the way. But, uh, you know, broadly, I think that's been a theme. Mm. And if there's a figure... Um, a, 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 you know, alive or dead, that you could have dinner for an just for an evening with anybody. Does anybody come to mind? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, Nelson Mandela. Uh, I think he's just. Uh, I, I mean, I think uh, you know he's he's lived through a lot of the impossible and. Um, you know, kind of come out on the other side with a lot of struggles, but made that impossible happen and um, stayed humble through that journey. So, yeah, I would definitely love to meet him. Yeah. Um, Extraordinary when you you look at his story, just how he managed to... You mentioned humility, but there's more, there's a lot more to the man than just humility. There was something extraordinary that he could turn around and forgive people who had locked him away for, what was it, 26 years? It was something crazy. Um, and, and to be able to move, that was it, to be able to move past that and not to hold that as, because you could be forgiven for being bitter for the rest of your life when somebody takes 26 years of your prime uh, years away from you. But he actually used it, which is... Extraordinary, extraordinary, uh, really is. Um, 
I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about uh, where you where you plan to take the business and um, yeah, where you see the next challenges in the in the business. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so I think um, um, overall this is definitely a competitive space. You know, sales tech uh, overall uh, has mm. had a lot of attention over the last few years for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, I think there are lots of players, lots of different types of offerings. What we want to be able to do is to deliver something that is, um, you know, much more complete and end-to-end -end so that it's not just a tool for managers because for the longest time, that's what a lot of sales tech has focused on. Um, so I think from a business standpoint, uh, that's kind of the direction that we want to take this towards. We want to make sure that this uh, becomes a platform that helps people end-to-end, -end, uh, helps sales teams end-to-end. -end. Um, and the second part of it is, like, I don't believe that just giving people more intelligence without helping them act on it helps. Mm. Um, so I think fulfilling that mission and it's a, uh, you know, I would say it's a pretty challenging one because it still involves a lot of cutting edge technology. Uh, a lot of problems are not solved. You're trying to look at unstructured data like a conversation as organic as this and then try to, you know, bucket it or find uh, patterns out of it. And, you know, none of that is like done or done and dusted. Um, so I think being able to actually, you know, double down on the AI and make that promise of unstructured conversations into intelligence that can actually, you know, feed the CRM or just feed any analytics. Um, I think that's, that's really exciting. I'm always curious how you do that. Cause when I, when call intelligence came along first, when I started, when I became aware of it, at least mm -hmm. I was extremely skeptical. Um, I could see how it can analyze a conversation and see, well, you were doing 80% of the talking, for example. I can see how from inflection it can infer there's, there was a question asked, but it can't tell me whether it was a good question. Um, or the way tonality can change the entire meaning of something. And, and that's what I'm curious about most when it comes to call intelligence is, where's next for the technology What's it not able to do right now that it really needs to be able to do in order for it to become as mainstream as using Word or PowerPoint is for everybody? Yeah, so I think um, one part of it is that uh, getting much better at interpreting some of those signals, right? Like you said, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know that that's a question, but I don't know that's a good question, all right? Um, and I don't know uh, whether this question was a follow-on to a question that you asked a minute ago, right? Um, so I think that's the big challenge today, which is how do you look at context beyond just that one sentence or you know the words that are together? Because context mm. in a conversation could be across you know that 45 minute. Uh, meeting that you're having right now, or it could be across, you know, the 45 days of interactions that you've had. Uh, and today, I think uh, intelligence is very much focused on very short and very narrow context and trying mm. to just make sense of, you know, verbatim in some sense. Um, so I think being able to put context, which is longer, which could be within that conversation, which could be across, you know, that week of conversation or whatever, that's uh, that's definitely one uh, step jump that is needed. Um, the second part of it, which I think is um, perhaps a little bit more challenging is, uh, you know, things that are impacted by tone, right? Like, was he being sarcastic when he said that? Right. Those things, uh, of course, like if you go and look at and that's one of the reasons why we don't use sentiment analysis data on the platform today is because we realize, especially in a sales context, that sentiment is uh, fairly subtle and often the noise is very high. Right. Like in a customer support conversation, that sentiment can be more pronounced, like, you know, this is an irritated customer. Uh, but, you know, very often in a sales conversation, you'll just be polite and say, hey, you know, I think we are all set. Uh, so I think yeah. that's that's probably a piece which might take longer to develop. Uh, right. Um, 
Mm. Uh, the third part of it is uh, identifying more behavior patterns, right? So talk to listen ratio or long monologues are one part of it, but I think where, um, uh, you know, AI can slowly get much better is just identifying, um, you know, other behavior-based things that uh, could be useful as feedback. Uh, so that could be things like, hey, you know, I think uh, somebody is maybe beginning to sound um, a little bit nervous because it seemed to be going on, uh, you know, with this particular pattern of voice uh, or with this particular set of words that they tend to use when they are nervous or things like that. Um, so I would say that, yeah, I mean, identifying behavior, bringing in more context uh, to each uh, signal that you are identifying uh, those are some things that AI can definitely uh, improve on in the short term. Mm. Have you any use cases where you're using it to help people embed training or, or onboarding? In, yeah, so we use this today for onboarding, um, but I would say it's fairly basic in the sense that we mm. use it for onboarding uh, with respect to giving them game tapes of actual conversations, uh, based on, you know, things that could be curated by the team or things that could be automatically curated based on certain patterns and search terms, etc. Um, the other part of the onboarding that we often uh, hear from people is that, hey, when my new rep joins, uh, you know, we try to give them, you know, the head of the conversations, right? Like, hey, this, these are the questions that you're going to encounter in 80% of your calls. But what is going to happen in the 20% or what is that tail, right? Like, that's, what takes much longer. And that's the idea with being able to cue them, um, you know, based on context, right? Like mm -hmm. if somebody asks you a complex question about, hey, how exactly does the Salesforce integration work? Can I show them that information? Because anyways, mm -hmm. I don't expect my rep to go in and remember it. And they're not going to get irritated because they see that information uh, when they need it. Um, so the idea is to be able to also equip people with that 20% of the questions that don't get asked frequently enough, but then they struggle with it. And that's kind of what prolongs their onboarding uh, as well. Um, so that's some of the things that we do today. Of course, from an AI perspective, there's much more that can be done in terms of, you know, helping people maybe record mock calls and then automatically analyze them, score them, things like that. But yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Thanks for that. It's a, it's, it's a realistic uh, pricey of where we are and, and where it's got to get to, to be mainstream. I think it's come a hell of a long way, there's no question. And I think there's certainly any of the companies I'm familiar with, they all, almost all of them anyway, use some form of call intelligence. I think now it's considered to be a normal part of sales stack and it can just get better. So, so that's a good We've thing. We've definitely come a long way from people saying, are you sure sales refs will be okay to record their calls? Uh, yes. to people say, yeah, how do I record it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's for sure. Uh, there are some markets, though, I still see huge resistance, Germany being one of them. It's, and I think it's used as an excuse sometimes by reps because nobody wants really to have their calls. Well, sorry, I'll take that back. Most people, I would imagine, I have no data on this, probably don't want their calls recorded. They either, they just don't like the sound of their own voice or... They know they're not killing it, and therefore they don't want the evidence that suggests that they're not killing it. I would imagine that people who are really into self-development, growth, really value it. Okay, But I wonder then how many people use it. Say, oh, GDPR, for example, in the European context, GDPR, GDPR is used as an excuse. And, and, and it is an excuse because I know a lot of companies who despite that, just will, will announce at the beginning of a call, hi, it's Paul, I'm calling on a recorded line, and nobody cares. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but uh, interesting. I think right. the, other, the other reason you so, missed out is uh, that a lot of times reps like to oversell or, um, you know, undercut uh, with discounts, and they don't like that being recorded either. No, no. No. <laughs> no, I can understand that one for sure. Um, we're almost up on time, Shruti. Just a few questions to, to finish us out. Uh, desert island question. If you're going to be marooned on a desert island, what one thing would you like to take with you? Um, uh, I would say my Kindle. Okay. I like that.
yeah. Now there's no Wi-Fi. You do know that, so you're gonna have to make sure it's. <laughs> I think there fully are loaded. already as many unread books as I can probably yeah. read in a lifetime on that. Yeah, yeah. Are you a reader? Um, Sorry, I should really. have asked you what type of reader are you? If you're, yeah. Um, I, I think uh, all. I like to read all types of books. I read pretty slowly because I think I reflect a lot when I read. Um, mm. But yeah, I've been reading. Uh, I like reading like books around human behavior. Uh, and then, of course, mm. I like reading a good fiction every once in a while. Mm. Now, I'm going to try a little experiment. I have one final question I want to ask you. But before I ask you that, I have a little experiment. I was listening to another podcast last night and... They do this at the end of every podcast, and I thought, I love that idea. I'm going to steal that, and um, I'm going to try it out, see if it works. I don't know if it will or not. So the idea was that every guest on this guy's podcast, um, Diary of a CEO, very, very excellent podcast. And I was just listening to that podcast last week, and I was thinking oh, really? the same thing. I love that idea of asking a question to the next guest. Perfect. Well, you are going to be my very first guest I'm going to ask to ask forward a question for my next guest, which will be tomorrow. Okay, uh, so the question is, what is the biggest thing about technology in sales that scares you? Oh, what is the biggest thing about sales technology, right, specifically? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that scares you. Lovely. That's, I'm going to be really interested now in, uh, in their answer to that one. Uh, thank you. Great stuff. Final question. If, when, when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of that book to be? Well, that's a tough one. Um... Happiness is easy. I think you'll find a lot of people will pick that book up. Yeah. I, I, I think there's probably another conversation in understanding what's behind that because is, is, is happiness simple? Is it easy? Is it, is it yeah. a state of mind? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, to some extent that's the journey that we are all on, right? Like mm. trying to figure out the answer to what makes happiness. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm hoping that by the time uh, my time is up, uh, I would have figured out some of those answers so I can write that book. I love it. Absolutely love it. Shruti Kapoor, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Likewise, I really enjoyed the conversation.